In 1990, James Cole was committed to a psychiatric hospital. He claimed he was sent to the future, to the year 1986, to collect information about the past. His world, the world of the future, had been mostly wiped out by a virus, and now the inhabitants were living underground. When asked if he was here to help save humanity, he responded by saying, This has already happened. I can't save you. Nobody can. What James Cole was really interested in was a group called the Twelve Monkeys. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkies. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly, and welcome to the 31st episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. On this episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite films, the 1995 American science fiction film, Twelve Monkeys. Twelve Monkeys is a time travel film of sorts, and rarely do I enjoy films that feature time travel. Usually my suspension of disbelief just won't stretch that far. More times than not, the logic falls back on itself, you know. I watched Time Cop the other day, starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. There are some highly questionable time travel ideas there. The biggest one is that matter can't occupy the same space thing. Now, even if I meet me from 20 years in the future, and the future me grabs the arm of me today, we are still occupying different spaces. Besides, human cells die and are replaced by new ones, so me and the future me wouldn't be the same matter. But the biggest plot flaw I see, and what I see in many time travel films and this is going to be a spoiler if you haven't seen Time Cop, is the paradox of it all. In Time Cop, JVD's pregnant wife gets killed at the beginning. But of course, since it's a time travel movie, you know he's going to come back and save her, which he does. But here's the thing. Once he saves his wife, the timeline has been changed. Now she's not dead in the future, so why would Jean-Claude go back in time to save her? But if he didn't go back to save her, then she would be dead, so he would go back and save her. It's like if I go back in time and kill Hitler. Well, when the future gets here, there would have been no Hitler, so I wouldn't have gone back to kill Hitler. Therefore, there would be a Hitler. Get it? Anyway, I went off on a little tangent there. I'm going to go back to 12 Monkeys. The thing that makes Monkeys a little different than most time travel films is, well, as Charles Roven, one of the film's producers, said... Most time travel movies talk about the fact that you can change the past. You can change the future because you've effed up the space-time continuum. Or they say the past, present, and future are all one time. And there's no such thing as time. But the premise of this movie is you can't change the past. You can't undo it because it is what it is. The film was directed by Terry Gilliam with a screenplay written by David and Janet Peebles based on La Jetée a 1962 short film by Chris Maker. La Jetée is an interesting film, one that I recommend viewing if you haven't seen it before. 
It's 28 minutes long and composed mainly of still photos with narration. It's all over YouTube, so there's no excuse for not seeing it. Now, apparently, Chris was part of what was known as the Left Bank Artistic Movement, which was all part of the French New Wave thing, a movement that I'm fairly ignorant of. Maybe one day I'll do a podcast about people like Jean-Luc Godard, Francis Truffaut, and the like. Then maybe I'll understand the whole thing a little better. But according to Wikipedia, it was a French art movement that emerged in the late 1950s. The movement was characterized by its rejection of traditional filmmaking conventions in favor of experimentation and the spirit of iconoclasm. Now, La Jete is about a man in post-apocalyptic Paris who is a prisoner in the aftermath of World War III. He is sent to the past to rescue the present. He has visions or memories from when he was a child of something that happened, a woman seen a man killed at an airport. So Universal Studios acquired the rights to remake it as a full-length film. David and Janet Peebles were hired to write the script. David Peebles had written the screenplays for the films Blade Runner in 1982 and Unforgiven in 1992. When they were asked to write the American adaption of La Jete, they were like, why? La Jete is perfect the way it is at 25 minutes. And the best they thought they could do was something like Terminator. But why would they want to do that? You see, James Cameron's Terminator 2, Judgment Day, had just hit theaters. David Peebles said, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, in our minds, masterpieces. There isn't a way we wanted to look like we were copying those pictures. So they said no. But the producer responded by asking, but if you were going to write a screenplay, how would you do it? Now, the couple have an interesting way of working. To get going, they think that what if their kids were kidnapped and the only way to get them back was to come up with a story? So they began working on it and they came up with ideas that would become 12 Monkeys. They are from Berkeley and they often meet people who claim they are from the future. And like most people, they ignore them. But they thought, what about a film from the point of view of a person who really believes he is from the future? And maybe a psychiatrist who reluctantly starts to believe him. Both, separately in their younger days, also worked in mental hospitals, and they used that in their story. After that, they just had fun adding whatever they wanted. On the Nashville Public Library website, there's a good interview with David Peebles, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Now, in 1988, Gilliam fancied himself as a writer-director who was always going to do his own original work. He came up through the ranks of Monty Python, and then he became one of the most visionary directors of the 80s with films like Time Bandits and Brazil. But then there was that whole Adventures of Baron Munchausen disaster, that seemed to put his career on hold. That might be a story for another episode. So in 1991, he became a director for hire, directing the film The Fisher King, a job he only got because he was buddies with Robin Williams and the producers wanted Robin Williams for the movie. The film turned out very successful and, and Terry won or was nominated for many awards. So when Universal got the rights to the story, producer Charles Roven picked Gilliam because he believed the filmmaker's style was perfect for 12 Monkeys' non-linear storyline and time travel subplots. 
At the time, Gilliam had been trying to get a film adaption of Tale of Two Cities off the ground. And many doubted that Gilliam would even take the job because the studio, Universal, was the same studio that gave him all the problems with Brazil. But he said he was captivated by the people's intriguing and intelligent script. He said, The story is disconcerting. It deals with time, madness, and the perception of what the world is or isn't. It's a study of madness and dreams, of death and rebirth, set in a world that's coming apart. And he also said, By the time they got to me, they had tried proper directors and no one wanted it. No one seemed to understand what it was, what it was about, what the focus was, and how to deal with that. I love the fact that it went so many different places and it wrapped you into this kind of DNA double helix of the future. And then there's another oddity about hiring Gilliam. You see, Charles Roven's wife was Dawn Steele. I believe now she's passed away, but at one time she was the president of Columbia Pictures, and that's while Gilliam was finishing Munchausen for the studio. Steele, in Gilliam's mind, had dumped the film, releasing it only in a few theaters, and hadn't honored the agreement the previous administration made with the director. When Roven explained to Terry that Steele was his wife, Terry started to laugh, and he said, You know, it just goes to show you can never burn a bridge in Hollywood. Now, the film had two big things going for it. The signing of Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Bruce was already a big star, and he really wanted to work with Gilliam, so he was willing to take a pay cut to get the part. Gilliam, on the commentary track for the DVD, tells of what a joy Willis was to work with, that he was willing to do anything. That's a surprise over stories I've heard about him later on. But I guess at the time, he really wanted to prove that he could do more than Die Hard. And I think this film really shows that he could do more than John McClane. Now, Pitt was a stroke of luck. He had signed on when he wasn't yet a huge star. Interview with the Vampire and Legends of the Fall were filmed, but yet to be released. By the time 12 Monkeys went into production, Pitt had become a huge star. But like Willis, he really wanted to show that he could be more than a pretty boy and did everything he could to go against his current image. After all, he was just named the sexiest man alive by People magazine. He spent a long time preparing for the role, even spending time in a mental institution to learn his character. Madeline Stowe was wonderful in the film, but I can't really say I know much about her. Besides 12 Monkeys and 1987 Stakeout, I'm really ignorant about her acting career. I read that Terry had cast her in the abandoned film Tale of Two Cities. And he said of her, She has this incredible ethereal beauty and she's incredibly intelligent. Those two things rest very easy with her. And the film needed those elements because it had to be romantic. So here's the basic plot of the film. The Earth had been plagued by a deadly virus back in 1996 that has wiped out most of humanity. Now it's 2035, and the survivors lived underground, but wished to return to the surface. To do this, they turned to a prisoner, a man named James Cole, played by Bruce Willis. James is plagued with a vision or a memory from when he was a child that takes place in an airport where he sees a man shot in the back. Anyway, the leaders want him to go back to 1996 to collect information about the virus and of those responsible, a group called the Twelve Monkeys. 
but by mistake, they send them back to 1990 rather than 1996. The result is Cole is arrested. At the police station, he meets Dr. Catherine Rayleigh, played by Madeline Stowe, who has him put in a mental institution. At the institution, he meets another patient, Jeffrey Gomes, played by Brad Pitt. Jeffrey may or may not be connected with the 12 monkeys. Eventually, he's brought back to 2035. But the leaders give him another chance and send him back to the correct time of 1996. Oh, before that, they send him back to World War II where he's shot in the leg, and then he goes to 1996, just a month before the virus starts to kill people. The whole question is, is this whole scenario real or is it just in James Cole's mind? That's the basic story, but it's far more simple than a time travel and deadly virus flick. It's the story of the subjective nature of memories and their effect on the perception of reality. What is real and what isn't? But now it's time for a break. Now, unfortunately, we don't have Nancy or Russell on today's show. They are both unavailable, so we got a special guest to handle the break. Well, hello, everybody. I'm going to be my own special guest. It's Jeff here. And since The Twelve Monkeys is about time travel, I thought I'd mention a few other time travel films. The first stories that I know of that deal with time travel are Mark Twain's 1889 Satire, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and H.G. Wells' 1895 novel The Time Machine. Although I read in The Atlantic that Wells wrote an earlier story called The Chronic Argonauts in 1888 that deals with time travel. The film adaption of The Connecticut Yankee might have been the first film that deals with time travel. It was from 1921, and it was a silent movie. And then there was a 1931 version that was a talkie, and a 1949 version that was a musical. That might have been it until George Pal's classic 1960 adaption of The Time Machine. Now, I've seen quite a few adaptions of The Time Machine, but I think George Pal's version is still the best. Of course, there's the question of, is A Christmas Carol a time travel film? I don't think so. In fact, I need to ask, should films like 1968's Planet of the Apes and 1973's Sleeper be considered time travel films? I mean, they do all take place in the future, but the protagonist gets there by sleeping or being in a coma. So with that logic, every time I go to bed, I time travel to the next morning, right? When I think of time travel, I think of going back and forth. A couple of films that I really enjoy about time travel are Time After Time from 1979 and Somewhere in Time from 1980. Time After Time is the story of H.G. Wells who pursues Jack the Ripper to the 20th century. It stars Malcolm McDowell, David Warner, and Mary Steenburgen. Somewhere in Time is a fantasy story in which Christopher Reeves finds his way back in time to 1912 to meet an actress played by Jane Seymour. Unfortunately, he also brings back a penny from 1980, which will cause problems. Long before 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam dealt with time travel in his wonderful film Time Bandits, which deals with a group of little people who have stole a map from God that shows places they could jump through time. There's The Terminator from 1984, which has Arnold Schwarzenegger as a cyborg who was sent back in time from 2029 to 1984 to kill Sarah Connor. 
I love this film, but sadly, I thought all the sequels have been disappointing. I mean, when are we going to get to see John Connor finally become the hero that we were told about in the very first film? And if you think about it, the Terminator was so close to completing his goal, why not send the next one to an earlier time? Maybe kill Sarah Connor's parents or grandparents rather than keep chasing her and John Connor around. A very silly but entertaining film also from 1984 was The Philadelphia Experiment. The film claims to be based on true events, about scientific experiments being performed aboard the USS Eldridge during World War II. Because of these experiments, Michael Paré winds up in 1984 where he meets Nancy Allen. The sequel from 1993 is even more ridiculous, but in a weird way still entertaining. Then of course in 1985 there's Back to the Future, a fantastic comedy but I've always had problems that if Michael J. Fox changed his parents' timeline, would they still have the same three kids who were born at the same time and live in the same house? Okay, it's a comedy and I'm nitpicking, I get it. And finally, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989. Maybe that's the perfect time travel movie, am I right? Oh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, there's Time Cop, which is another completely ridiculous film, but yet I enjoy it. If anything, it's because Van Damme is the star, and for some reason I always enjoy him in movies, and I miss his Tostitos commercials. Feel free to email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com and let me know your favorite time travel movies. Is there a good one that I've never seen before? I'd like to know. Anyway, thank you, Jeff, for letting me do the break, and now back to you, Jeff. Sent me to the wrong year. It was 1990. You're certain of that. What'd you do with your time, Cole? Did you waste it on drugs? Women? They forced me to take drugs. Forced you? Why would someone force you to take drugs? Thank you, Jeff. And yeah, I've seen many of those time travel movies that you spoke about. Anyway, it's good to have you on the show. Now back to 12 Monkeys. In the film, to hide out, Cole and Dr. Rayleigh go to a theater playing Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. The screenwriters put that in because it was one of the producer's favorite films. But there's a great line in that bit in which Cole says, It's just like what's happening with us. Like the past. The movie never changes. It can't change, but every time you see it, it seems different because you are different. You see different things. If you can't change anything because it's already happened, you may as well smell the flowers. What flowers? Somewhere in the light. It's an expression. One of my favorite scenes, and there are many, is the scene in which after Cole meets Jeffrey in his large home, where he runs back to his car and releases Madeline Stowe from the trunk, he begins to question his sanity. Maybe he is crazy, and wouldn't it be great if he was, that no virus was coming? He starts dancing around, and meanwhile, the police are closing in, and Madeline Stowe begins to panic. It's important you surrender to them instead of their catching you running from them. Okay? Well, wouldn't it be great if I was crazy? The then the world would be okay. I wouldn't you have to the live gun. underground. I lost Where the gun. Where is the gun? I could live right here. <laughs> you got water, <laughs> air, stars. I'm going to attract their attention. You breathe. I'm going to attract their attention so they know where we are. <laughs> oh, I love this world. They're gonna tell you to put your hands on your head. Do what they say, okay? And I love the frogs. I love the spiders. Remember, I'll be with you. I'll help you. Okay, I'll be 
and suddenly Cole is gone. Now of all the things that make this film fantastic, there's the cherry on top of the celluloid sundae, and that's Frank Gorshin as Dr. Fletcher. Four years, Catherine. We've been working together for four years, and I've never seen you like this before. So please, stop being so defensive. This isn't an inquisition. I didn't think I was being defensive. I was trying to explain to you exactly what... He should have been in restraints. It was bad judgment on your part, plain and simple, so why not own up to it? Okay, it was bad judgment, but I have the strangest feeling about him. I've seen him someplace, and I've... Two policemen were already in the hospital. Now we've got a security guard with a skull fracture. I said it was bad judgment. What else do you want me to say? Uh, now, you see that? You see what I mean? You're being defensive. Isn't she being defensive, Bob? Uh, Dr. Fletcher. Uh, uh, we have uh, another situation. Gorshin makes any film better, and sadly, he wasn't used enough in his lifetime. For you younger kids, most of us know Frank as the original Riddler from the 1960s Batman TV series. Frank was also a fantastic comedian, impressionist, and actor. A very underused actor. Also in the film is Christopher Plummer. This is one of the few bright spots in Plummer's later career. He made a lot of, well, questionable acting choices. The film was made on a very low budget for $29.5 million. That might seem like a lot, but not for a film like this. Most of the people working on the film, including Gilliam, the producers, Willis, Pitt, and Stowe, all worked for far less than they would normally just to be part of it. So instead of building huge expensive sets, they used old power stations in Philadelphia. And as sets, they really worked to their advantage. As Gilliam said in the film's commentary, What I like is going to places that exist because you find things that you wouldn't invent normally. Then you adapt them for the film. Because when you sit down and design a set from scratch, I always find it limited in its scope, and it's lacking in surprises and quirkiness. Things are too controlled. At one point, Terry saw a huge condenser in a power station with a hole in the side just about the size of a man. That became the time machine. They built a whole contraption to sort of inject James Cole out of a condom and into it, and it looks fantastic. And it probably wouldn't have been so wonderful if they didn't come across that condenser. The old power stations they used to make this movie really gives the film an unusual look. Okay, you know, I've made it clear that I really like this film. But always I ask the question, does everybody appreciate the film the way I do? And for that, I go to Rotten Tomatoes. The film gets an 88% audience score, which is good, but not high enough in my opinion. Daisy B gave it 5 out of 5 stars and she wrote, So weird and trippy, but that's what makes it amazing. I couldn't agree more, Daisy. Luca B gave it 4.5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, The plot is a little convoluted and confusing, but its excellent performances, stylish visuals, surprising plot twists make it an undeniable sci-fi cult classic. Luca, I, I agree, but in my opinion, the fact that it's convoluted and confusing makes it a classic. But like always, not everyone appreciates the film like me, Luca, and Daisy. Andrew A. gave it only one star, and he wrote, A somewhat interesting concept that didn't translate onto the screen well. 
I couldn't get into it. Okay, Andrew, I accept that. Mark C. gave it only a half star, and he wrote, Bruce Willis traveling to different time periods like a lunatic looking for an army of 12 primates, watched over by weirdos in white coats who control the time machine? Enough said. Yes, Mark, enough said. And Stu West gave it two stars and wrote, Ugh, Brad Pitt, quote-unquote acting. A decent movie until Pitt comes on the screen. Go back to acting school and save everybody a lot of pain. I don't know, Stu, I like Pitt in the movie, but maybe that's just me. Not productive anymore, at least to make things anymore. It's all automated. What are we for then? We're consumers, Jim. Ah, okay, okay, buy a lot of stuff, you're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? Mentally ill. Back, Jim, back. If you don't buy things, toilet paper, new cars, computerized blenders, electrically operated sexual devices, stereo systems with brain-implanted headphones, screwdrivers, miniature-built-in radar devices, voice-activated computers. Take it easy, Jeffrey. Be calm. As for the music in the film, I thought it was awesome. The main theme is from a piece called Sweet Punta del Este, and I hope I pronounced that right, by a fellow named Astor Piazzolla, who is a Argentinian composer. also uses music like Sleepwalker by B.J. Cole and What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, among others. The original music for 12 Monkeys was composed by Paul Buckmaster, and he's done quite a bit of music for films and TV, but he's more known for working with people like David Bowie, Elton John, Harry Nielsen, The Rolling Stones, Carly Simon, Leonard Cohen, Miles Davis, and The Grateful Dead. I can't say that any of his music really stands out, But maybe that's the point, right? Piazzolla's music stands out just enough, and the rest is just, you know, setting the mood. On the commentary track for the DVD, Gilliam talks about how he likes to use music differently than, like, a Spielberg. Spielberg uses music to let the audience know how to feel, and I get the feeling that he doesn't want his music to work that way anyway. Now, as far as the movie goes, I'm going to nitpick a little because there's one part I didn't get. Maybe you, the listener, can help me understand. When Madeline Stowe first meets Bruce Willis in 1990, she mentions that she feels like they had met before. Have you been a patient at County? Have I seen you someplace? Not possible. I need to go. I need to... I'm supposed to be gathering information. What kind of information? But as far as I can tell, she had not met him before that time period. Am I missing something? Like I said, I don't know if that's really a flaw or if I just don't get it. But, you know, I really enjoy this film. One reason is it makes you think and doesn't spoon-feed you everything. So many films I watch, I want to scream, I get it. That guy is a bad guy and that guy is a good guy. Now get on with it. This film leaves so much to the audience giving the viewer some credit for having a brain. Even when the film's over, people can discuss it, and every person probably will have a different idea of what the film was about. It's different, and as I've said before, and I'll say it again, 
different is almost always good. For Jack's two weeks in another town, he was torn between a lost love and a new love. I like girls with black eyes, soft mouths. Jack was also torn between a lost career and a new career. I don't want your charity. If I'm through as an actor, I'm through. And to hell with you and the whole murderous business. And then what? You stupid, stubborn, washed-up ham! There are the movie directors like Maurice Kruger, a sensational role for Edward G. Robinson. Kruger was master of everything he surveyed. Everything, that is, except Mrs. Kruger, played by Claire Trevor. Maurice Kruger, the great lover. Before I go, the thing about Terry Gilliam, he seems to consistently be fighting with the studio. And this goes all the way back to his Python days and even before. I've heard it said that he just isn't happy unless he's battling authority. I've read two good books on Gilliam, and I highly recommend them if you're into them at all. The Battle of Brazil... Terry Gilliam versus Universal Pictures and the Fight for Final Cut by Jack Matthews, and his autobiography, Gilliam-esque, a pre-posthumous memoir. So next week on the show, I'm going to talk about a film called Two Weeks in Another Town from 1962. It was directed by Vincent Minnelli and stars Kurt Douglas and Edward G. Robinson. I've never seen this film before. And normally, I do something a viewer recommends, but since I didn't have one recommended to me for this week, I picked the first film that came up on Turner Classic Movies On Demand. We'll see how it goes. So listen up. We have a Facebook page. You should join it and leave your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid being all one word. You can email me for any reason at all. You can tell me I'm a jerk. You can say hi. You can recommend a film. Whatever. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back next week with my review of Two Weeks in Another Town. Bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. Your stupid minds! Stupid! Stupid! The High Court may well sentence you to torture! Can you play the piano? I can't!